this morning, I want to draw your attention again, to, though, to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, this, this story, the story of Naaman, I think, is one of the most interesting in all of Scripture, especially for three specific words. The three words that come about in verse uh, 13 of the text this morning. As you know, as we read, Naaman walks away from this uh, time and this ability to be healed. He walks away from it in a rage. He walks away from it angry. I love how his servants are questioning why he's walking away. And they even reveal what would actually be on Naaman's own heart. Look at what they say. Look at verse 13 again. It says, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing. Wouldn't you have jumped to do it? Wouldn't you have been so eager to do that great thing? And he only told you to do a simple thing. Wash and be clean. I want to talk to you this morning about that. The silly summit of some great thing. One of the most interesting stories, at least for me, in the last uh, year or so, was a story that actually happened uh, last summer. Uh, if you can remember that far back, uh, there was a phenomenon going on on Mount Everest known as overcrowding. If you can imagine such a thing as overcrowding on Mount Everest, but it was a real thing and a real tragedy. Apparently, in the summer of 2019, there was too many people on Mount Everest. In fact, let me read you a little excerpt from a news article about this story. The writer says, Mount Everest has become so overcrowded... That the sheer number of people trying to summit the mountain is at once putting climbers' lives at risk. The known death toll, again this is back in 2019, during this year's climbing season, which is typically only lasts a few weeks, is 11. And the last time 11 or more people died while climbing Everest was during a 2015 avalanche. According to the New York Times, but the latest death seemed to be the result of overcrowding, not inclement weather. And one climber who spoke to the Times told the paper that he had to step around dead bodies on his way down the mountain. Why? Because there were too many people on Everest than there should be. I just find this story incredibly fascinating. Tragic, yes. Sad, yes. If you want the Darwin Award, I think they, these people are winning the Darwin Award. Overcrowding to try and take a... Really awesome Instagram picture on the summit of Mount Everest, I suppose. What was once considered such an enormous feat that he would actually be knighted by the queen herself, as Sir Edmund, Edmund Hillary did in 1953, is now being attempted with such frequency that there's a problem of too many people. There's too many people on the way up to Mount Everest. Me, first of all, a guy who doesn't really like cold weather, even though I've been called to Pennsylvania. Uh, the first question I have to ask is, why? What would ever lead someone to want to do that? What's the inspiration uh, to try and summit this mountain? Maybe you get a good picture, I guess. I don't know. But who would have ever thought that the, the most dangerous problem that's afflicting Mount Everest is not the weather. It's overcrowding. Too many people on the summit. Why risk your life for that? Why risk your life not only weathering all the elements, now weathering all the other people that are jockeying for position on the summit as they try to reach the peak of the tallest point on our planet? Me, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by this. 
I'm kind of uh, confused as what what would lead people to do this. But in a way, I think that overcrowding on Mount Everest actually serves to sort of reveal what our society worships. Namely, we like to do the impossible. I think it's safe to say our society is one that covets strength and success and triumph and power and trying to overcome the unattainable by achieving the unachievable and being the hero, being the conqueror, being the one that actually does the impossible thing. We want to be the champions. We want to be the center of attention. In our society's minds, there's nothing uh, too impossible that we cannot overcome, not even Mount Everest itself. And in that way, I think the Everest climbers, the ones who tragically lost their lives, I think are actually, in a sense, living parables of the human heart. They want to do the impossible. Our hearts are bent towards this. We are bent towards uh, doing the impossible thing. Yes, even the foolish errand of saving ourselves. The greatest, most impossible thing in this life. We're bent towards that. Scripture reveals this almost on every page. Scripture, in many ways, is is a, a story that reveals man's inability to save himself. And all throughout it all, the, the hope, the glory of a Savior who has come to us. And I think the best example of this story, uh, of this fact, I should say, is this story. The story of Naaman. It offers all the evidence, I think, that we ever would need to show that humans, uh, we, all of us, even in this room, are addicted to accomplishing the impossible and saving ourselves. And I want to speak to you about that this morning. And first of all, I want to point out, as as was read in verses 9 through 14, the silliness of trying to do the impossible. Look again at verse 9. It says, so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Naaman is frustrated. He thought that his importance would lead to some great thing being accomplished on his behalf. Naaman's resume is is an impeccable one. If you go back to verse 1, we get a description of Naaman that I think is one of the most revealing ways to describe one of the biblical characters ever in the Bible. Notice what it says. Now Naaman, verse 1, captain of the host of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor. He's described in such a way that you would know that this man is the cream of the crop, so to speak. He's the best of the best. He is the leader of the host, the captain of the armies that have just uh, been on a conquering quest in a foreign land. He's the captain, the conqueror, the champion. Great and honorable is this man, Naaman. And yet, for all of these incredible credentials which Naaman possesses in and of himself, it is all negated by a few words. The last phrase of verse 1, but he was a leper. You see, for all of Naaman's greatness, for all of Naaman's strength, for all of Naaman's ability to be the most prestigious in his realm, no one would have traded places with him. 
No one would have said, I want to be Naaman. Why? Because he was a leper. For all of his greatness, he was also seen as the lowest. For all of his strength, he could never hide his weakness. It was always apparent. Always out in the forefront. For as much as he conquered, he could never conquer himself. And conquer his own disease of his own life. He was a leper. Even still, as it says in verse 2, the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's life, or excuse me, Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. So this little maid, this unknown little girl who is taken captive by this conquering army is taken back as a hostage into this foreign land. And even here she sees the plight of her new Lord. And she says, would that he was with the prophet of my land and he would be healed immediately. So she tells of this way that Naaman can be cured. And eventually, if you jump down to verse 8, Naaman is, uh, is brought before the prophet Elisha. Look at verse 8 again. And it was so, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him, Naaman, come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house Of Elisha. He comes here. Naaman now comes to the door of this prophet. This one who has been rumored to have the cure. To have the antidote. To have the way that he can be cured of all of his physical ailments. And he brings with him a royal escort. Notice as it says again. He came with his horses and with his chariots. This is a full blown entourage of people. That come to the door of this prophet Elisha. All of which serves, I think, to make sure everyone in the vicinity knew just how important Naaman was. He brings all of the people that he could. Making sure that his status goes before him. Making sure that his reputation is well and clearly defined. But notice, I love this detail of the story. Notice who comes to the door. Naaman came with his horses with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent his messenger unto him. This is one of the most fascinating details of the story. Elisha, the prophet, the one who is rumored to have this miracle cure for Naaman's ailments, is not even bothered enough to come to the door. He sends his messenger. He sends one of his servants of his house to come to the door and greet Naaman. I can't imagine Naaman's face knocking on the door. One of his servants knocking on the door. And who greets him? Not the Lord of this house, but a servant, a butler. This isn't how he expected to be greeted. He's too important for this. He is too significant for this type of a greeting. He is, as it says in the King James, he is wroth. He is infuriated. He's enraged at the fact that his importance would not be seen, not be noticed, not be taken into consideration. Notice it says, verse 11, but Naaman was wroth and went away. I imagine him going away fuming, stomping his feet like a little toddler because he was not treated as he thought he should be. How dare you? You don't even have the decency to greet me. Do you know who I am? I'm the captain of the host. 
I'm a great and mighty and valorous man in my country. And he's outraged. His resume isn't respected. It's not regarded at all. It's not even considered by Elisha the prophet. He doesn't deem him worthy of anything more than just sending his messenger to give him a specific message. And this doesn't sit well with Naaman. He figured surely that his status would lead to some sort of better treatment. Notice he says in verse 11 again, behold, I thought, I thought, I figured, I, surely he will come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Surely he will do some great thing. Surely there will be some, some magical, mystical thing that happens. Some incredible scene will come about and I will be healed. In such a way that all will know what has happened to Naaman. He's infuriated by this. By this lack of significant treatment. But notice also. He's also mad. This wrath that is being stirred up in Naaman's soul. Is, is stirred up because the remedy is too easy. Look at verse 10 again. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again unto thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned, and went away in a rage. Why? Because it was too easy. The command is go and wash. And what does he desire? He wants some spectacle. He wants some special striking thing to happen in his life. Some amazing moment that he can look back on and know what happened. And yet, what is he told? Go, go and wash. You want me to do what now? You want me to go where and do what in that place? No long hard assignment. No complicated ritual. No incredible incantation that he has to memorize and speak. No great thing to overcome. No impossible summit that he has to achieve in order for this healing to be received and experienced. No. Just go and wash. Go bathe yourself. Bathe yourself, yes, in the Jordan, a river that was known for its filthiness. But again, this sounds too simple. Sounds too easy. Just go and wash. That's it. This is all you've been saying the whole time. This is all that has ever been necessary for me to be cured of my leprosy. This, this easy command of go and wash. He goes away in a rage. Because he wanted to do the impossible. He wanted something hard to do. He wanted something to conquer. And so Naaman, he walks away. Get this, Naaman, a terminal leper, he will die. It's an absolute fact that this disease will take hold of his life and he will die. Yes, before he is probably likely to. And he walks away from healing. Because it was too simple. Notice. It says he was wroth and he went away. Down at the end of verse 12. And went away in a rage. It's too easy. And his servants call him out on it. Verse 13 again. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said. My father if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing. Wouldst thou not have done it? 
How much rather then, when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. Then he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. His servants call him out. His servants call him out for his irrational response. This command, yes, it seems a little out there, Naaman. We, we get that. But shouldn't you at least try it? I mean, you were wanting to do some great thing, but this is a relatively easy thing. Shouldn't you at least try it? Naaman, I'm sure, stubbornly, finally realizes that, yes, I should at least give it a try. And he does, just as the prophet commands. And wouldn't you know it, it works. Verse 14 again, then he went down and dipped himself seven times to the Jordan, according just as the man of God said. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. His skin that was all leprous and diseased and filthy and not uh, that was making him an outcast. Yes, even of his own land, even yes, as the captain of the host is now turned into the flesh of a little child like baby's skin. And he was clean, yes, perhaps for the first time. Not in the way that he imagined, but a miracle happened. Not in a a spectacle of amazing display, yes, but a miracle happens in this river. He is clean. The silliness of trying to do the impossible. This is what Naaman was evidencing. He wanted something hard to do. And yet even as he experiences and goes through with this easy thing. Notice the story doesn't end there. Because next. Look at verses 15 through 19. Because this to me is almost the more important part of the story. We have the silliness of trying to do the impossible. But also the silliness of trying to buy what is yours. Notice verse 15. This is after the washing, after his moment in the Jordan River. And he says this, and it says, And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord, that is he, that is Elisha, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto the Lord, unto other gods, but unto the Lord. And this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servants in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. To me, I'm most fascinated by the fact that Naaman feels such incredible guilt. Yes, guilt, that actually after receiving and experiencing the simplicity of this healing... He's not only dissatisfied as he was before with his simplicity, but he's also dissatisfied with how free it was. He's dissatisfied. He's actually distraught at the fact that he cannot pay for it. He cannot contribute to this healing any uh, any amount. He goes back to Elisha's door. Yes, once again, with all of his pomp and circumstance, with all of his entourage, with all of his royal escorts, with all of the status that he believes that he has... 
And he tries to compensate for the healing that he has just experienced. He tries to pay for it. He says, as it says in verse 15, I pray thee, take a blessing, take this gift. Thank you for healing me, Elisha. Thank you for giving me what I've always desired. Here, here's some money. Here's an offering. Here's some gifts. Take it. I need you to take it. He's so resistant to an easy and a free healing that he tries to renegotiate the terms of his healing. He tries to go back. I want to add another condition. I want to put myself under another clause. I need you to let me pay this off. Pay off this debt of healing that you have given to me. And Elisha was having none of it. Notice he says in verse 16. As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. Notice verse 19. He says, go in peace. Again, he doesn't even consider Naaman's status. He doesn't even consider the significance that Naaman is trying to throw in his face and flaunt. He just says, go in peace. You can't pay for this, Naaman. You can't buy this healing, Naaman. You can't pay for this restoration with any amount of might or force or valor. With any amount of conquering or championing or overcoming. See, what Elisha gave him was a gift. And gifts cannot be bought. Thus negates the concept of gift giving. (laughs) A gift is given for free. Of the total benevolence and grace of the giver. is given totally for free. We often don't like that. I can tell you, when I've received gifts, it almost offends my spirit. How can you be so kind to me? <laughs> and this is Naaman too. How can you be so gracious? How can you be so loving? How can you be so generous? And in that way, we're just like Naaman. Or just like this conquering king who for all of his status, for all of his significance, for all of his prestige was brought down by one thing. He was a leper. And yes, for all of your status, for all of your prestige, for all of your ability, for all of your uh, ways that you can accomplish the impossible this morning. You are brought down to one level. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one in here who that does not apply to. And yet we are still overcomers. One of my friends, he says it this way. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But that has not stopped us from comparing distances. You're a little bit less fallen than me. We're still blind to this incredible need that we have for a free healing. Naaman's story and the story of those Everest climbers, if you remember... To me, they are the perfect pictures of our failure to understand the salvation that God gives us in the gospel. They're the prime example that we too like to be given something hard to do. We need some clause that we can pay off, some debt that we have to owe, some great thing that we need to accomplish. Give us something to do. Give us a checklist to master. Something to memorize. Something to accomplish. Something to overcome. 
And yet, as is everywhere in the scriptures, you can read it from front to back, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And what you will have to come away with is that the gospel of salvation that is given to us in Jesus Christ is by grace through faith. It's just that easy. No other thing needs to be done. No other uh, incredible summit has to be reached. And to us, this sounds too free. Sounds too easy. It makes us mad. We want something to do. Give us a law to keep. Give us a work to perform. Give us something that we can accomplish. Give us something that we can hang our hats on and know that we have some sort of merit that we can claim, that we can cling to. This is what we want. And I would say, just like Elisha, who was a little bit offended, I think, perhaps by Naaman, coming back and trying to buy this healing. Nothing offends God more than trying to buy what's already yours. Than trying to pay for what he has already paid for. You see, trying to buy your salvation... By works that you can do and accomplish is like paying a check that's already been taken care of. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been out to dinner and, and you know that this person is going to pick up the check and you try and steal it from them. But they still pick up the bill anyways. And yet you insist, let me pay for it. Let me contribute to the bill. My meal was way more expensive than yours and we even got appetizers. So let me at least contribute something. And they refuse and then you insist, let me just pay the tip. Let me just carry, cover that at least. Let me do something. Let me contribute in some way to this bill, to this generosity you're giving to me. It's too free. And I think in the same way, this is what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It announces to us that the debt of sin has been paid in full, Period. There's no other clauses. There's no other addendums. There's no other fine print that's added to the gospel that says you have to do other such and such thing. You know, like those car commercials? Car commercials are the, great, are the greatest, I think. They always offer this incredible offer. You can trade in this janky old clunker of a car. And we'll give you a brand new 2020 car. No, no exclusions except for that huge paragraph of addendums and fine print that the guy reads at a pace that you can never understand ever. And in that fine print is all the exclusions that do apply. That you have to be a certain height or something. I don't know. You have to be a certain age. There's all these fine print that nullify the offer that's being given to you this morning. Let me tell you, the gospel has no fine print. There's no little clauses that you have to meet. The only clause there is the same one that we just knew and reminded ourselves of. is the fact that what? We have all fallen short of the glory of God. If you meet that, if you know that you meet that, then this gospel is for you. The grace of God is for you. It's for everyone who's fallen short. Everyone who has failed to live up to the standard of God's righteousness. This is what the gospel declares. 
The debt of sin is paid. It is finished, Jesus declared in John 19.30. And with that, there is nothing left undone that needed to be done in the gospel of salvation. Yours and mine, if you believe in Jesus' blood that covers you this morning, it is settled already. Your salvation is settled. In Jesus Christ and his accomplishments for you and his healing that he bought for you on that cross. Just like Naaman was unable to renegotiate the terms of his healing after the fact, you and I cannot renegotiate the terms of our redemption. We can't go back to God and say, here's my works, here's my holiness, because we don't have any. Here's my blessings. Here's my gifts. All of those were given to you by Jesus in the first place. There's nothing that you and I can do that can pay God back for Jesus' sacrifice. That isn't meant to dishearten you. It's meant to make you rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that this work is finished already. Like Naaman, we experience salvation from sin and we want to pay God back for something. We want to make sure that we can reciprocate the generosity. We can give him some sort of blessing. And if we're not careful, our life of faith can quickly devolve into a life of just that, of spiritual reciprocity. Spiritual payback, so to speak. But that's not the way that God would have us live. The life of faith in God's salvation is not like paying off a mortgage. Where every month you're, you're trying to pay off some installment and eventually, someday, hopefully, maybe, you'll be able to get out from underneath that and mortgage with all of these series of installment payments over a very long period of time. No. If God's salvation was a banknote, it would read paid in full. The mortgage is cleared. The debt is already paid. No further payment is required. It's already been taken care of. The bill has been paid. You don't have to add anything to this check. It's already been done. Which then leads us all back to the same point. That the crux of Naaman's story is the crux of the gospel too. It all boils down to one thing. Faith. It all boils down to that one word in which is so robust and has so much in it. Faith. You see, because Naaman was given this incredible task. Incredible in the sense that it seems too outlandish, too simple, and too free. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be healed, completely pure. The river didn't flow with magical waters. The Jordan wasn't some mystical river that had some magical ability to heal any who bathed in it. Elisha didn't give Naaman some mystical uh, incantation to, in which to speak and heal himself. Likewise, for you and me, we have no magical, mystical prayer we can utter. It all comes down to faith. Do you believe that there is only one way of salvation? Like Naaman. He refused to believe, surely there's some other river I can go in. Surely there's some other way that I can get healed. There's some other water that can cleanse me and make me clean. No, just like there's one river of healing which was given to him in the message by Elisha, there is only one way of salvation, and that's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
All that's left for you to do this morning and ever for your whole life is put your faith in the already finished, already completed, signed, sealed, and delivered salvation of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel offers. Something that's already done and it's handing it to you. He's offering it to you for free. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says it this way. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and so certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy. This to me is a great testimony of the Christian life. A living, daring confidence in the fact that this grace is yours. Not because of anything that you have accomplished or led to do. Not because of any summit you've been able to reach. Not because of any some great thing that you've been allowed to accomplish. It's yours because of Jesus. It's yours because Christ died and rose again on the third day. It's yours because Jesus Suffered all the torment and anguish that you deserved. It's yours because he went to the cross as your substitute. It's yours because he took the end that you deserved. It's yours because as it says in Isaiah 53. He was unashamed and unafraid to be accounted among the transgressors. To take the place in the grave of the wicked it says. Why? So that the many might have righteousness. This is what Jesus has done. He's accomplished the great thing for you. He's already summited and overcome your mountainous sins. Now all that's left is go and wash. Believe and live. This is the gospel. The only question remains then, do you have that daring faith to believe in that kind of a gospel? A gospel that is so free that it frees you to live rejoicingly in the freedom of Christ. Freedom to love your neighbor. Freedom to serve your brother and your sister. Freedom to honor your father and your mother. Without having to worry about paying back and winning something and accomplishing some great thing. But freedom to do it out of faith. Freedom to do it because you love to. That's what the gospel gives you. This morning I pray. Do you believe in that work of salvation that has been done for you already? Are you trying to do some great thing? Let's pray.